you want to just lay the scene, set the scene for everyone? Uh, the physical scene of where we are? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So we're in bed, which is um, a bit unusual because it's 7 o'clock at night um, on a Saturday, but lockdown six here in Victoria. Um, so not a lo- lot of other options for us, but kids are down. House is a mess, but keen to catch up because it's been a while for us. I know. It was way back at the start of this podcast season, which I don't know whether you, but I've really loved this season so much. Um, And we were sharing about um, the miscarriage and just where we were then. So we thought it was high time that we catch up and settle in for a cosy chat and give you all an update on where we are now and what's moving and, yeah, what's what's happened in that last couple of months. I mean, I said it was time for a catch-up. I, I just meant we haven't really spoken much this week as well as um, a break from our last podcast. That's true. We have not spoken at all this week, mm. which is really unlike us. We, as a, as a unit, as a family unit, we're often very much in each other's space but um this week it's been a bit bit of a busy one so how are you feeling oh a bit wrung out um yeah i think because we do try and not work as much as possible when we do have a busy work week and it was a particularly busy work week for me probably the busiest of the year i'd say um it's such a shock to the system that um yeah, it's hard. It's hard to bounce back. I think I said to you today, what is wrong with me? Am I allergic to capitalism? <laughs> <laughs> so this life model of like, how do we work the least? Yeah. It's so accurate. And and I guess we do have ebbs and flows and we have ebbs and flows by purpose, like on purpose, because we really need that variety in pacing in our lives. Um I, in particular, am not built to go at a a particularly intense pace um, work-wise. In fact, since we last spoke, there's kind of been some movements on that front. Maybe we should start there, but it's been six months since you transitioned out of um, your job Mm -hmm. and it's been a couple of months since we combined our businesses into one company how are you feeling about that? Um, I'm feeling like it's been a really good move, but it still feels like it's the start of the journey. Not We're not at the end point yet, I guess, is, is how I feel. Um, and that's kind of my model, I guess, is a, a bit of a pro- progressionist. Um, so it wasn't... Uh, abrupt quit job life looks completely differently the next day um although it probably did a little bit for the first week and then returned to some sort of normal patterns of work in trying to build the bridge between where i was and where i wanted to go um so yeah it's been good and and diving more into um our work together um, not so much the, you know, the consulting side, which we've sort of done for a long time, but um, the the teaching, the you know, the podcasting, the learning, and you know, the tiny course that we put together, um, that's been a really great um, sort of reorientation for me and a learning process for me as well. So that side of things has been really good, but um, definitely keen to sort of step back more from the formal work side. Um, yeah, how have you found it? Well, I'm regretting the chocolate <laughs> I just had. <laughs> it's how I feel. Is that all you were thinking about when I was, I was talking? Like, honestly, 90% of <clears throat> what I was thinking about. Yeah. So I'm at that point in my cycle where I just really like those magnesium cravings are really like knocking on the door. And, um, and my PMS has been pretty horrendous since the miscarriage. And I just, you know, when you're like searching around the cupboard, you're like, basically you're looking for the cooking chocolate. Well, you That's li- where you're going. You literally had a stool <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. And I found some Easter gluten-free, dairy-free chocolate 
in the very back of the cupboard. And it's a surprise in August. But it tasted like <laughs> it tasted like carob, and my whole body has gone into some kind of inflammatory shock as a result of it. So, how have I found it? Um, I've found it not much different, to be fair. Yeah. To how life was before, because you'd already been working at home for so many years, and you've well, still been one year. No, but like from home. Yeah. Like you've been working from home for a lot of years. On and off. Yeah. You've on been and at off. home you've been at home more than most folks, is what I was yeah, saying. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean I was going to the office. Before yeah. the pandemic I was going to the office. I can't even remember three or four days. The pandemic. Yeah, yeah, okay. Were you? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't notice <laughs> I you. So. <laughs> yeah, so I don't feel like life has drastically changed. Um on the work front. But what I will say is it's been a pleasure having more equality in the parenting and housework. And you were already pretty stellar on that, but I, I would say it's it's almost 50-50 now, um, which is really amazing. And that has been really nice. Um, so we've also brought on a business manager this year and it's nice to like have a little team, you know, because mm. I think for so many years um, we've both been kind of working in silos I still think we're balancing and it'll be a lifelong balance for us, right, because we do want to opt out and we do want to challenge the known ways of doing things, but we still exist within systems that require monetary exchange. Um, Just finding that balance of how much is enough and knowing that when we do have these early peak seasons that we've got the capacity to course correct and I think for me coming out of the miscarriage I leaned heavily into a tilted heavily towards work and I've got so much compassion for that movement um and I think now what I'm sensing in all of the family system is a a kind of recalibrating um from that season and coming into spring now here I feel like there'll be more focus on the property and the local relationships if we can ever leave our house and um yeah and I and I've certainly made some big shifts in my work in the last couple of months well the last couple of weeks should I say in response to just my body not super loving how much time we've been spending on screens and sitting um Mm. so yeah but I I think I think with all of these things, it just takes way fucking longer than you ever think to to be in, in complete transitions, you know. Mm. And along the way, you're contending with those fears of, um, you're contending with the parts of you that want to stay in the known all the time. Mm. Have you found that that it's hard to like switch courses or change tracks or? I mean, you're asking me, um, 100%. I mean, that's, um, like I was saying, I'm a progressionist and, you know, I do feel most comfortable taking, you know, one step, checking if it's a, if it's a good direction um, before I take another step. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sprinting anywhere in transitions quickly. Um so yeah it's been it's definitely been gradual i think it's been particularly gradual given you know covid and winter's just been really shit winter's been so shit this year like i don't want to sound like i'm whinging about the weather but i'm totally whinging about the yeah weather. i don't it's the weather and lockdown combination that's um that's just really debilitating um, because if it's wet and cold, but you can go to other people's houses or you can go to the library or you mm. can do, you know, we could go shots. to see our go, family. Yeah. You can go to the city. We haven't seen our family in a really long time. Then, you know, you get through it and, you know, winter's a season in life and it's, it, you know, it's necessary and brings so much respite for the ourselves and for nature. Um, and you can work around it, but this year we, we just haven't had the, um, the usual, 
um, levers that we could pull to, you know. Oh, and we came into it so depleted, like, after the pregnancy and the miscarriage. And then the first couple of weeks of winter, everyone got really sick. Mm -hmm. And that lasted, like, six weeks. And we haven't had been sick since, but, like, that kind of set the tone for winter. And it's just felt really hard and really long and... um, yeah, at times really isolating. And I and it hasn't felt like a lot of winters I go into real hibernation and this winter has felt not restorative or regenerative in any way. In fact, I feel now at the end of winter that I'm finally getting some regeneration in my system. Mm. But during winter we recorded our tiny course. And how was that for you? Like how was that process? But more than that, how, was it nice capturing our kind of manifesto in that way, do you think? Oh, 100%. And to be doing it together um, was a real, you know, something really symbolic, I think. Because um, we don't spend enough time together. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we... <laughs> we spend so yeah, much time together. Yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> um, no, I just think... it. Even though we spend a lot of time together, you know, I've been for most of my time working on things I believe in, but sort of separate Yeah. to, you know, there's a separation between our life day to day and the work that I'm doing. So what you're saying is, it was so nice to see how impressive I am in in my work. I mean, I had <laughs> have worked with you a bit, so I had that <laughs> feeling, but it was good to see you, I guess, um, and, and to be sort of a mesh with you and your element that way, if that's the compliment you're <laughs> hoping for. Um, I'm putting hand cream on too, if like anyone's wondering what that squatching noise is. <laughs> this is so unprofessional. This is a good one. Um, but it was... Yeah, I, I felt in terms of the way we did it in, in partnership and, you know, the things we were talking about, just the, the alignment of it all, you know, was something, I guess, more new to me. Um, and that was really nice. And and, and our beautiful um, OBM Katie was there too and it was like, yeah, it was just a really cool day when we recorded it and, mm. yeah. And because I was... You know, I'm talking about, and we were talking about things that we are doing, but also working towards doing as well. Um, and particularly, you know, I'm thinking about the localization and, um, you know, and meshing ourselves more here, you know, in a mindset and sort of geographic sense. Um, you know, that's been really. Um, I guess eye-opening for me and revealing for me with COVID as it is and, you know, us being here for a few years now. Um, yeah, that was that yeah. was good for me. What, what about for you? I think that that module, like that lesson local is life-giving, like propelled a lot of growth and reflection internally. And I think like I shared a post about it tonight, but I think that, the way that we do our courses and if you've ever been in a space with me, you'll know that like a lot of well-being and slow living stuff, advice to me can come across as either shame inducing when you don't do it quick enough, well enough, or it's really focused on like massive big changes. And I think our kind of, experience but also our perspective on this is that we didn't want to teach anything about what to do with your life Mm. because it's your life you know (laughs) and we didn't want to teach five steps of like what we did but rather that the course is built around five principles that can be embedded across any aspect of work uh, and life and which in their very nature are integrative so they you can integrate them across any aspect of life, but they will bring more integration in life in general. And I think that 
we do that in a way that's so gentle and compassionate that as I was recording it and reflecting on the life, local is life giving lesson in particular, I didn't feel like, oh, fuck, I should be doing more of this. I genuinely felt like it just landed in a new way. And because I wasn't the one teaching that particular lesson, like you did that lesson and I did some of the others, it was really nice to hear you put it together and it just settled in my body in a new way. And I think COVID for us has been put and and my body not having the tolerance to sit on screens and teach, you know, 12 hours a day has really pushed me toward that knowing that really what is going to be most regenerative for all of us as painful and as different as it is to how we have been living is to be more connected to place and to to build local communities and local economies and we've always known that intellectually but because we're quite global thinkers with a lot of global experience I don't think we were really embodying that until probably the last month or so um so I loved it. I love the course. I feel like the process of learning in that course also encapsulates everything we believe in. Like the name of it is Small is Beautiful and the course is really small. It's like 100 minutes and you can knock it over in a weekend and be standing somewhere different. And to me, like everyone's heard me bang on about it a million times, but the process of learning can be so much more beautiful and so much smaller than the way that we're doing online education at the moment. So I loved it. I, th- I think it's beautiful and I can't wait to do more of them. Yeah. I was... But to have like that set of principles that I believe so strongly in that I know are life-giving out there packaged up in this way, it just feels like a marker in the sand of like, mm-hmm. this is what we believe in. And this is what how we organise and orient our lives, you know. Yeah, totally. And I was going to ask, mm. given the conversations you've been having through this series of the podcast, um, maybe some of the changes that you've been working on in, you know, parenting and property and you know, sobriety, you know, what's what are you sort of eager to explore and dive into you know, either in more conversation or um, um, reflecting that in sort of everyday here? Mm, well, I think that simultaneously what's been happening is that we've been doing some some consulting work um, in a cup in the violence prevention space in, in, a, in a couple of, with a couple of different organisations. And what that has really shown me and something that I've experienced and changed my work around and life around really significantly is um, regenerative relationships. I feel like I want to go back and record another podcast on that. Maybe we'll do that. I think fundamentally one of the most empowering things we can do is learn how to actually be with each other again and the actual practical skills of that. So there's the embodiment piece and there's the mindset piece around that. But there's really like a skills piece that I'm curious about um, that can be taught sequentially almost that allows people to experience a greater depth. In the tiny course I talk about in the Connection is Key lesson, I talk about how we ultimately just deeply yearn for more than anything else the knowing that we're lovable just the way we are and those deep unbridled heart connections, you know, underneath every yearning, that's what we want. And yet we lack the skills and the embodied knowing of how to do that because capitalism has and patriarchy and all of the like hierarchy basically has systematically pushed us away from each other, not brought us back together So that for me is always a living exploration and it's living in the way that I fuck it up all the time and I live from my reactions and my body memories and my traumas and I make mistakes. But I was saying to my beautiful therapist the other day, like I might not move the needle where I thought I would in my parenting 
but what I'm really good at is repair. You know, like I'm really good at repairing and that's something I'm super proud of because to repair bring like in a relationship to fuck up and know how to come back into connection with that person as a skill is like requires so much humility and vulnerability and courage but is almost the most profound thing we can do right Mm. and learn to do Mm. so i'm curious about that but what about you like what are you exploring at the moment because i haven't really talked to you (laughs) for a while um i was just i'll get to that just thinking about the connection piece um it's fascinating that we're in connection with so many more people Mm. um i don't know what the figures would be but you know just by virtue of the online spaces we occupy now, we are in connection with so many more people than at any point in human history. Um, But the depth and the way we engage is so different. Um, You know, there's still, you know, there's such isolation and loneliness and, um, yeah, it's it's a real... um, uh, yeah, it's a real, what's the word? Not juxtaposition. Paradox. Paradox. Um, yeah, it's a real paradox. And um, It's like Dunbar's <clears throat> number. <clears throat> I was just looking it up. You know, the number of relationships we can actually maintain based on our biology, based on our primitive <clears throat> biology, how many we're able to maintain relationships with. And the like in the most intimate circle the most number we can maintain at any one time is five Mm. and it goes out from there in terms of how many we can maintain as they get further and further out from us Um, but it's not as big a number as we are in connection with every day and i think that even in our work like you think about how many people we're in contact with in a week it's far beyond like what we would be if we were just local. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking as well, that it, it comes back to how we're living and, you know, we've moved from our relationships being those that are sort of proximate to where we're living predominantly um, to just endless opportunities globally. Um, yeah, it's a real shift. And it's not, it's just not this idea of more is better, like, I don't know. If you think about that you're carrying, because particularly for women, I don't know if this is for you, but like because of our conditioning, which is don't look basically adopting a posture of maintaining connection because maintaining some kind of connection makes us feel like we're enough and makes us feel like we're valid and valuable in some way. And so that posture that we adopt of tending to all these relationships in our energetic field, in our mind, constantly being like checking in with that person like energetically like oh i've got to get back to them i've got to get like i'm just going to read out right now on my phone i was saying this to a friend yesterday i have 21200 messages 147 voicemails 3500 unread um email messages as in like i look at them but i don't you know i'm not obsessed with getting my red dots down right off my thing but I just can't maintain if, – if I gathered every person that I'd been in connection with and kept that connection going and felt like I had to give them equal attention and equal, like, I don't know, it would just it, – it, it creates so much stress and anxiety. And so I think what we've done is it's like in everything in, in our world, we've taken like the junk food version – of connection and the idea that more is better instead of adopting a seasonal diverse approach to connection which would say that some people are on like a once a year beat you know and some people are on like a quarterly beat and some people are on like a we see them every day beat just by chance because they live around the corner and that all of those beats create like kind of a symphony of connection, but we're not 
feeling when we're not in connection with that person insecure or unsure, right? And that we have to prove our lovability or worthiness by maintaining that thread of connection. And don't get me wrong, like some people I want to, you know, those early stages of relationships where you just fall in love with people, you know, and you get to have that experience of like wanting to be with them all the time. I think that's that's another beat, you know, but this idea that, I don't know, do you experience anxiety about keeping in touch with people or is that just a, a me thing? Um, not anywhere to the same degree and I don't know if that's a you and I thing or a gender um, uh, sort of learned a norm. thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, definitely not to the same point. Um, I liked your symphony analogy, though. That was really good. Thanks. Thanks, babe. Was that just then? Yeah. She's good. <laughs> um, to go back to your question on where I'm going. Yeah. Um, I think the conversation that we're having very briefly over dinner around... Um, Cranberry juice? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of conversation about that. Um, Our kids are so starved of sugar that they got a dash of cranberry juice in their soda water with dinner and it was like hot topic, wasn't it? Oh, exclusive <laughs> conversation from their side. Um, no, I was thinking and, well, I was talking briefly about how we were sort of structuring our lives and, um, you know, do we sort of move or like how we sort of reduce our overheads in terms of labor and cost and debt um or you know do we just plug away what we've got and you know we'll get there because we're in a good direction or the right direction at least um so i don't i don't know if that's just because it's literally the last thing that we were talking about but um you've been on that track for a while yeah i know i talked about in the last podcast as well um so, I mean, that's on my mind about just how we sort of structure ourselves. Um, I mean, structure is not the right word, but how we move through life and, you know, what um, what our sort of setup is in relation to others um, and how that can really, you know, how we can maximise that to bring the most out of our lives you're talking about you're talking about so to to make it really Mm. practical okay you're talking about living in community with other folks so that there's reciprocal exchange that's um not necessarily of monetary value so what you're talking about is how do we reduce debt and how do we opt out of the ways that capitalism drives us to be productive units over relational beings um and fundamentally, to do that, we need to stop living in isolation. We need to start living together. And you've been, for most of the year, really thinking about that issue, right? About how we can, yeah, and how we can stop being slaves. Yeah, how we can stop being slaves. Um, yeah, I think when I quit my job, I liked. When people ask me, what are you going to do? I'd sort of like to say, I'm just going to try and tear down some systems. Um, And that was kind of going to be my job. Um, It's really hard. And it is hard. (laughs) Sharing down systems is really hard. It is hard. And you don't get paid a lot for it either. No. But anyway, it's something that at least is on my mind. And when you say living in community, I don't mean like, you know, moving to a commune although you know that's definitely one path for people um but you know even just to cook a meal for for another family once a week or yeah yeah. to to build enmeshment with others locally um you know one one step at a time or potentially by buying a plot of land with a couple of other people yeah um and having a couple of dwellings there and, and living sort of in, in very, well, reasonably close proximity where, you know, you can share um, childcare, child you can share the burden of the garden. Veggie, veggie beds, yeah. Um, you know, maybe there's some food exchange. Um, but at the very least, the debt that you would incur by doing that would be less than if you 
buy some land and build a house by yourself. Well, and fundamentally there's debt in financial <clears throat> terms, but there's also debt in energetic terms. And so what mm. we have found is <laughs> the story of our life is like constantly doing everything. And so one of the things we teach in the course is actually like the concept and the idea and the embodied practice of turning away from parts and letting them rewild while you focus on one thing at once and how life-giving that is for the whole ecosystem but in practice that's been really hard for us and so how we've operated is we'll opt out and we'll teach opting out but we'll still kind of half be in and we'll know what it is is like we want the veggie bed and we want the local relationships and we want um to homeschool our kids and we want to have all these animals and but we still have the same financial burden as anyone else operating fully in a system with a full-time job so our financial liability so what what that actually equates to is we're carrying the labor of doing all of that ourselves in the absence of a community and elders to actually teach us what we're doing so i think the last month in recording that course we were like oh my god we're still operating under the capitalist idea of individualism of really like we're trying to generate and catalyze so much on our own and even though our networks are growing and building, ultimately a lot of the folks we're in a relationship with don't, like, are really fully in systems. So they don't have extra capacity to come and help in our veggie bed and vice versa because we're trying to service a home loan and, and consumer debt and all mm -hmm. the other things that everyone else has. Is that a is that a accurate way of describing what you're talking about? Yeah, that's kind of it. It in a nutshell. I was giving you some... It's very much not a nutshell. That was a pea nutshell. That's some, my long one. Some hard nods there. Um, because we are... We're living the life that we want to be living, but it's the life that actually requires other people to be living it in conjunction, really. Yeah. Um, and we're living that life while, as you say, servicing, you know, debt, although, you know not nearly as much as a lot of people, um, but still having debt that has to be repaid that necessitates a certain amount of work and income that takes us... So, yeah, we're, we're doing it And that takes both. us away from doing the things that you need. Like, fundamentally, we're talking about it today. To live a slow, simple life actually requires capital, requires capital because you need to have and whether that capital is financial or community or human it requires time and it requires space and it requires um the sense of urgency to not be so such a driving force and i think that what we've ended up doing is yeah creating this incredible life that we're so proud of but it's come like it's been heavily, heavily, um, what's the word, engineered um, by us, yeah. Mm. And I wouldn't change the journey for, for anything, but I think we're at this point of like we need um, to either support other folks' vision or them support ours or we're just really realising, I guess, where are we best leveraging our resources and time? Because ultimately it's not, um, yeah, our bodies can only do so much, right? Mm. And that's been a big thing over the last six months um, is, you know, I, you've in particular had, um, you know, some, I guess, revelations around ageing and, you know, feeling your body. um I guess ceiling. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's not, it's not the ceiling, but it's, it's pushing up against your capacity right now, mm. which, which is obviously a, you know, it's an invitation. It's a demand to do things differently. It to, is. To continue to. It is feedback. And I feel like it's just a dropping down, like a, again, <clears throat> coming back to the concept of small is beautiful. Like, are we actually living those concepts? And if we were applying those principles really, truly, maybe our lives wouldn't look like someone else who has a full permaculture farm that's growing all their vegetables. Like maybe for us, 
our work is focused in regenerative culture and relationships, but we have a really great reciprocal exchange relationship with local food producers. So we don't, or, or we share a garden with someone or someone, you know, we've got friends moving up here soon. Um, they share our garden and animals, you know. I think that it's like it's a humbling moment when you realise that what you're working towards in some aspect is an aesthetic that you've been sold that might not be your particular constellation of things, you know, that is the most life-giving for you. And I know for us it's a really hard thing because I want to have my hands in the soil as much as possible and I want to be with the animals as much as possible. Um, And that is constantly at odds with also my desire to be teaching. And I spoke about this in the podcast with Jade, right? Like Jade and Katie on future steading, um, that that balance is hard, for me, mm. and I well, want to be with my kids. Hard like, for them as well, and they're totally. Um, you know, they've been doing it for a lot longer. Ten years as well. longer. They're our elders. Yeah, yeah. So, I feel like we should also mention, um, yeah, like we made a decision about schooling. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and like coming back to the episode with Jill which I recorded earlier in the year. Do you want to talk about that? Because I feel like that was you leading very much so. Yeah, which is um, a bit ironic given our upbringings. Um, So Meg was homeschooled and I went through a fairly conventional, um, you know, Catholic education, (laughs) if we can call that conventional. (laughs) Um, uh, but yeah, I've been on the bandwagon for a while now of, um, just being really, um, uh, challenged by the institution of education. And a lot of this is courtesy of the Wildlings podcast. Also, you read, um, well, you've read heaps. You've been on like a massive journey. Mm-hmm. But I think you were really compelled in the last quarter by Free to Learn, right? Free to Learn is such a yeah, such an amazing book and experience. Um, yeah, and look, I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to preach um, homeschooling for everyone, but I think it, it is a real privilege to have the luxury. I mean, luxury. We've kind of been forced into it in a lot of ways. Um, in a really privileged way. In a really privileged way. Um, you know, daycare just never really worked for our family. Our family. Um, and we've tried it in different guises um, and persisted for a really long time. Um, and that makes us reflect on, well, what's what's going to be possible and what's what are going to be the implications of school um, five days a week for um, our daughter, you know, particularly our, our daughters, but particularly our elders who's neurodiverse. Um, so that sort of was the impetus to start looking into and learning about alternatives. Um, it's also just been my vision from very early on, like before we knew Millie's particular sensitivities, like mm. it's always been, and she's she's mm. been very adamant for years that she would like to be homeschooled, but it just never felt possible because of all the aforementioned reasons. <laughs> well, we were always, I guess, eager to explore um, Different alternatives models, yeah. to just a traditional sort of education, whether it was Steiner or part-time or... Um, you know, we don't have Montessori around us, but, um, yeah, it's something else. Um, but you know, as we've gone through and we've, we've explored the options, um, it's, it's kind of brought home that, uh, whichever one that we were looking at, um, it still had some fundamental, um, elements that just weren't going to sort of mesh um, with where we are right now, and it may change over over the years as the girls get older. But um, and I think that's the that's been a really liberating thing from my learning is sort of that realization that 
you can you can change like mm. you can experimenting you can do an extra year at home for no sort of cost to your child's development um or you know well they're going to develop lives at least because they're going to keep the developing anyway. right are they going to keep developing brain wise it's like how much attachment do you have to their literacy and numeracy as a reflection of you that's really ultimately the question. How much attachment do you have to their conformity? How much attachment do you have to their capacity to sit still? How much attachment do you have to their capacity to follow instructions and get a good job and get, you know? And for me, that was where my resistance really sat was fundamentally the assumption that you can only learn under instruction and you will only be able to develop good literacy because I had two English teachers as my parents even though I was homeschooled they were both English teachers and it was fairly structured in and a very high focus on literacy and comprehension which was amazing because I have exceptional critical analysis skills now but I couldn't quite trust in my body I couldn't quite trust my kids right which is where that conversation with Jill and conversations with you and conversations with other folks who are considering the same thing just started to help me see my kids um in their capacity to learn all the time all the time like learning every minute of the day and reflecting on how I learned and how I do learn and how non-conventional it looks right like the way that I learn the way that I move in the world actually is really different to the systems that we've been brought up in. And I can see how much masking I had to do in order to fit when I did go to school because I just didn't move in that way. So I then became the disruptive kid. I became the smart-ass kid. I became the kid getting sent out of the room, the kid wagging school. And I got good enough grades, wasn't exceptional. It wasn't until I got to uni and I was in charge of my own learning that I really, like, came to life, you know. And in as in I could choose when I studied, I could choose, I could do it in relationship with my peers who were interested in the same thing. I was fucking interested in it, which mm-hmm. is like, God, how many times I spent at school doing things I wasn't interested in. And you said to me these words that have stuck with me ever since. You said... I said, I just don't know where I'm going to find the capacity for this from. And part of that was really understanding that I don't have to put on a teacher hat. I just need to facilitate learning, which I'm already doing all the time anyway and is actually my job in, in the real world. But also you said to me, it's not going to get any harder than this. Mm. Like this where we are now is the hardest it's going to be. It's going to be at the minimum the same. But it could also be way better because we're going to be in relationship with other people doing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'd say it's still hard for us, but it's, it's a lot less difficult because we're, between you and I, we've got, you know, we're with our girls, you know, 90% of the time. 98%. <laughs> anyway. Um, so it's not Including as Including all night. It's not as though we're having to, um, restructure our lives to open up space um to pull them out of school to you know homeschool well we're also not we're also taking an unschooling approach so it won't be heavily desk based yeah yeah and that was as you said you know that was really important for me to sort of um you know come to the you know eye-opening realization that um you know artificial not artificial, like formal instruction is an artificial, um, uh, you know, mode of learning. That's that's something that's a fairly um, recent um, approach to how we raise our children. Yeah. And there's, you know, some pros to that, um, obviously, but it's not it's not particularly intuitive for us as human beings and for um, young people. Um, and it's, it's a really um, finite sort of model. Um, it's quite a competitive model in most settings. Mm. Um, the, you know, people talk about the limitations of homeschooling in terms of 
socialization and being social. But it's really, you know, I think it's pretty strange to have kids in classrooms, you know, for most of their school day, they're not being social. They're, you know, sitting there listening and being, um, being sort of compliant and, you know, lunch breaks and recesses, there's a really small amount of time for play. Mm. It's under supervision and it's essentially with the same peers, the same people, the same ages, um, which isn't particularly natural either. Um, so, you know, that's all to say. Also, I feel like it's at. not, I feel like what we've learned is like, you, you, if you can have a play date that's child focused and where you're scaffolding those relational skills, you need way less of that kind of learning than like, like it's kind of this idea, again, the quantity thing, like you, you throw them together for eight hours a day, that equals socialization. But what's the quality of that social interaction? Is it scaffolding esteem? Is it scaffolding um, valuing diversity? Is it scaffolding um, how to repair and rupture and repair? Is it scaffolding emotional intelligence? Like is that play being facilitated in a way that's not top-down power over, like these mm. are the rules and comply or don't? And this idea of, like, we have a kid who, you know, I would say there's elements of me in there of, like, who is totally allergic to, to direct instruction and the more direct instruction she gets and the more punishment and coercion and power over she gets, the less she's going to learn, the more into fight or flight she's going to get, the less she's going to be receptive, the more dysregulated she's going to become. And so I think in a way trusting her and working back and observing when are the periods in the day that she naturally feels called to learn when are the periods how does she learn what is she interested in right now and how can we scaffold around that like she's been super interested in cooking so um we have been like scaffolding a lot of learning around that in terms of quantities and numbers and words and um she's got her own ingredients so she needs to be able to read the first letter of the things on the jar or the flour to know what she's putting in mm -hmm. i mean we're eating a hell of a lot of experimental food and the chickens are being very well fed but like could we trust her body well enough to know that when she feels regulated she will learn and our job is to support that you know, with opportunities. Mm. Um, I'll kind of share two last thoughts on yeah. this. One, there's a really good analogy in free to learn about like structured sport versus just play. Mm. And it's basically, you know, imagine the difference between, you know, enrolling your or signing your kid up to the local soccer team. You know, you're playing with the same kids week in, week out. You know, you it's not all about winning, but you sort of celebrate when you do win more than anything else. Um, everything's been done for you. You turn up, you know, your parents drop you off, whatever else. Versus you give your kids a ball, they roll down to the park by themselves. They see who's there. Um, you know, they might be meeting people for the first time. They might be organising with people they know. Um, they've got to find their own teams. They've got to set, you know, they've got to agree on where the goals are going to be, how big they are, how big the field is. Um, you know, they've got to adjust for the different ages of the different people so that, um, you know, everyone's enjoying enough to keep playing because no one's obliged to be there. Like there's all these different skills that are being applied just because it was unstructured. Mm which I really love both in terms of sport but also in terms of education. But the other thing I'd say is if there was a, a democratic school and, you know, if you haven't heard of a democratic school, really encourage you to look it up. Um, if there was a democratic school locally, I would Oh, it would be our dream. It would be up. our dream. Well, we might even create one. We'll see. But, yeah, um, yeah and, and I just want to end that conversation because – as embodied and congruent as we are about it right now, I also know that this conversation 
um, can bring up a lot. And I also really, as in everything we do, and particularly in the course, is talk about like context and how the way that we've set up and organized systems and society, the way that we live, the pressures on us emotionally, um, on us physically, on us financially are extraordinary. So it is an incredibly privileged place that has a lot to do with our whiteness and our identity and our mm-hmm. intellectual um, leg up from our families of origin. And I don't, and I really get that. And my hope is that it can work two ways, right? Like there can be folks opting out, there can be folks opting in and and agitating for change at a system level and supporting in their homes a pro-social and emotional well-being approach, um, modelling that for kids, creating communities of care for kids where they're being exposed to diverse ages and skills and mentors. Like there's so many ways to apply what we're talking about in other ways and also some days you just fucking can't like there's just no capacity and there's so many days like I don't want to paint the picture that we're sitting there like and we've all got our morning coffees or we're no one else drinks coffee in the back actually I don't even drink coffee anymore we're all sitting there like sunlight streaming through the window and like we're sitting down and doing our work but it's just not like that at all like it is literally nothing else has changed our life so we've we've we're just we're just not sending our child to school next year. Yeah, it's <laughs> chaos and it's really hard and... Everyone's got feelings. Um, everyone's got feelings and, um, you know, there may well be a point where we need to send our kids to school for any number of reasons. Yeah. And, you know, we'll be yeah. okay with that. And it's not a judgment on... I guess what we're saying is it's not a judgment on people sending their kids to school. No, totally. What it is is it's an acknowledgement to those of you who are feeling like even if your kid is like in air quotes performing or functioning well in a system, that if there's intuitive nudges that are like, oh, that feels strange or like I'm not sure about that, I'm not sure about um, little Freddie getting sent to a corner... And that's raising alarm bells in your system. It's to validate that and say that even if there's no other alternative right now, that those instincts and impulses are valid and that that system, as great as the teachers are, and there's so many amazing folks working in that system, that system is fundamentally based on a paradigm that children need to be controlled and not respected. And that would feel funny for anyone you know mm. Mm. um yeah and test shit and test shit <laughs> and i think it's that the, thing the of stress like, on our kids is so yeah what are we expecting them like ridiculous. what are we projecting onto them and what but, form of excellence do we want them to embody and what would that mean about us and them right mm. like i think yeah, yeah i think there's a lot of things we can do as parents of kids that are going to school you know both just in day-to-day but also you know agitating at you know school boards or um in collectives teachers yeah there's there's a lot of um scope for that and you know i don't envy teachers because they're um you know they've got one of the hardest jobs going around yeah yeah and and to the and to those parents of kids that I guess don't fit in the system like we see you we get you we really bloody understand how hard that is to you um and the grief that can come with that and mm. I think that these diverse beings um these sensitive beings are just here to help us find more life-giving ways you know in their in their nose to the systems that they help us um, as, as painful as it is for everyone. Um, I thought you in, meant, sorry, yeah. No, just in that wrestle um, with wanting to belong and, yeah, I'll just, pee, I'll just peter out because I don't know where I was going. No, because I interrupted you because I was going to um, <laughs> say I was a bit confused. I thought you were talking about their noses, not their... Oh. 
their nose. Their plural nose. No, their nose. Sorry, apologies for that. That wasn't worth the interruption. No. I don't. <laughs> um, what? How do you want to wrap this up? Well, I think I think maybe there's there, there is some questions that people might be asking that I'll just answer, even though I haven't been asked directly. But no, we're not pregnant, and no, we're not trying to get pregnant currently. Um, my body's having some time to regenerate, and I'm getting a lot of support with that. And we don't know what will eventuate with that. So I just wanted to update you all on that. Why well, these podcasts have become uh, pregnancy, pregnancy updates? Update. Yeah, um, and I, th- I feel like we should talk about banjo. Well, you should talk about banjo. Well, um, no, because I'm curious about you saying it from your point of view. I don't. I don't have a lot of insight. Um, <laughs> what can I say? Um, horses have come into our lives in the last number of months in a much greater way. Um, we're caring for two ponies, um, that are in a paddock next to us, um, now that the girls, um, are notionally looking after, um, and enjoying their company. Um, and through, um, the same connection Meg has um, met and befriended and sort of has been, um, uh, I guess, gifted. No, I bought him. I bought him. Bought. Okay, well, I didn't, you know, didn't that. know He didn't know that that money had gone from our account. I didn't know. Um, no wonder we need to work so bloody hard. Uh, a Brumby, a Brumby that's been rescued. He's been five weeks not wild so he was caught five weeks ago yeah in a master and then an, um, an organization rescues them and rehomes them and yeah we were lucky enough to be offered one to buy one to buy yes. one yeah um so what else can i say uh it's been a really good self-care sort of um step for you um you're spending a lot of time with said Brumby, um, which is a... Well, and riding yeah. with good women. Yeah. So I saw a, a, another partner um, uh, of... Uh, a friend who's a, bought a, one of the other Brumbies. That's so convinced right. to buy another Brumby. So we're kind of talking about a support club um, for... Horse husbands. Horse husbands. Um, but, yeah, it's been a... A great thing. I mean, it's it's part of your sort of DNA, really. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing. It's also a lot. Like, I've never broken a horse. I'm learning I from scratch. I really sc- hate that terminology. Scratch. Yeah, I what hate it too. Like yeah, I don't love it. But it's the terminology. Yeah. Um, I and, – and, you know, my beautiful friend Carla's got the Brumby who – he's a bit pushy. He's a bit of a brute. But you can touch him all over already. It's been four days. And I've got the Brumby that floods with adrenaline every time you go within 50 foot of him. And so it's requiring a lot of patience and a lot of humility and not a lot of ego. And it's requiring, like, me to be really open to learning from elders and taking instruction, which I'm not great at. And, yeah, it's um, about my own regulation too because he picking up on everything that I'm feeling. So it's been amazing to be back riding. And i tell you what the whole thing about it is. It's one, local is life-giving, just to plug the course again. But two, when someone stands in a place, it makes something possible. So, so often in this individualist way where like I want to do this thing so I have to generate all the momentum for it and it feels really hard but then someone comes along that's like oh I've got a pony that your girls can ride and stands in that place and gives you access to other folks who also have horses that you can exercise and give you education and like it's just about relationship. Like it's 100% about relationship. And I would have never thought, like I never would have thought that I would have a horse um, like two and a half years after having my second kid. I thought it would be something I'd come back to when I was a lot older. Never thought the first horse I would ever own would be a, a wild Brumby that was completely mm. unbroken. And it's going to take a really long time to be a riding horse if he is at all, right? And that's okay. 
But these are the ways that life works when you're willing to be in relationship and ask for help. And I think that's the theme of this year, right? Is like just bloody ask for help. Get a Brumby. Get a Brumby. I'm curious because this has been going on forever. Um, what does small is beautiful mean to you? Like why did you call the course that? Um, I mean, I I heard it in another context. I stole it. <laughs> I stole it. Um, I heard it in another context. It's a very different context actually. It was an economic thing. Um, but it, it just really resonated, um, I think particularly with how we've been trying to, um, orientate ourselves this year, um, in particular, just, yeah, I think there's a real, um, there's a real risk. And I think we experience this in opting out and trying to do things differently that you just, you're having to do more just in in a different you're doing different things but you're still doing a lot of things yeah. to do it and you know we talked about that but you know we're trying to really live the life that we want to be having but we we're not doing it with the people or resources that we need to actually do that but we're doing it anyway <laughs> um so yeah just acknowledging that that way of doing things isn't particularly sustainable or life-giving either so um there's yeah, there's a real, um, yeah, I think we forget how important doing things that we can accomplish that are, um, yeah, I guess bite-sized that are in front of us that, you know, don't have the ego wrapped up in it, that don't have the, the ways we're taught wrapped up in it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of unlearning to do to sort of celebrate um, the simple things in life. And, you know, it comes back to when we'll, you know, um, housing around Australia and not around Australia, but we house that for, you know, nine months or so. And that was some of the best days. And we were just doing menial things of looking after other people's animals and having to get up early and, um, you know, tend to little mini farms and, um, you know, dog walks and just living in a really um, contained vessel. But it was such a rewarding experience. And mm. I think we kind of forget that as, as humans, that that's what our bodies are sort of built for. Yeah. That was that. long-winded. It was, but it was good. Uh, do you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about um, at what point someone might come to this concept where it would really land and resonate and where I have come back to that concept in my own life. And it's almost like, you know, when you're like rushing forward and you're like straining to do something and you're like so obsessed with it because you've got that tunnel vision that comes with being flooded with adrenaline and cortisol and, and someone comes into your bubble and they're like, Are you sh- like, do you want, do you want a hand? You're like, no, I'm going to do it. And then someone comes back into your bubble and goes like, well, what about if you did it this way? You're like, no, I'm going to do it this way. You know, that really like that forward momentum that capitalism teaches us and um, that the absolute knowing and of certainty of where we want to go and how we want to get there and that bigger is better and we need to just hustle more and work harder and shame ourselves more. Right? And then at a certain point you're trying to get over this wall or whatever and you're starting to get really tired and someone just comes into your bubble and it's that perfect moment of you've worked enough of that adrenaline through your system that you're a bit more receptive and someone just puts their hand on your shoulder and says, like, you know, you don't have to do that, right? You can just walk around the outside of the wall. <laughs> it's that. Like, that's what that course is to me. It's just like you just don't have to do what you think you have to do in the way you think you have to do it. And I know that feels big and scary, but there are certain people that are at that particular precipice of like, I just can't do it like this anymore, that are receptive to the knowing that actually as much as our ego and our unloved parts and our body traumas and our younger selves think that we have something to prove to the world, ultimately all our hearts want is to know that we're unconditionally loved just the way we are, to know that we are enough, that we've done enough, that we're doing enough, to have the liberation to tend to the minutiae and find joy in it and to really, like, come back to those, 
like beautiful bits of feedback that are coming through the body and acknowledge them that they're just, they're, there might be something in them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a nice way to wrap up. It is. It's been a pleasure catching up. Oh, thanks. Um, we'll do it again in three months. We'll have another conversation. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.